and uh, I, I want to get into this, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. There's some things in there that might be, it's like, okay, what does that mean? We're going to unpack it all. There's some, some great moral lessons in it, but there's a beautiful focus on family. And really, that's where I want to start. Let me give you some background before we get into chapter 3. The story of Ruth really is a, a story of, of family. And, uh, and I basically, again, I want to catch us all up here. Um, I love how we talk about family here at Messiah, okay? That, that, I, I love how we, 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 we talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and I know we've seen it in the story of Ruth so far, and we all know this to be true from our own lives, that family's messy, right? Uh, life is, is messy, but I love how we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe in this world. I believe in this life. We need each other. I mean, just like Naomi and Ruth needed each other, we need to not only celebrate, but we need to lean into that beautiful truth, that powerful truth that we are God's family through Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. And so today we're going to talk a lot about being family. But before anyone starts to think we're going to stand up and do a group hug, let's pray and then we'll get, we'll get in. So let's do that. Lord, um, bless us today through your Holy Spirit. Guide us into your word. Just allow this story to come off the page into our hearts, into our lives. Let it impact how we live and how we see you as our loving and faithful God, our Redeemer. And so bless us today, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, let me give you some backdrop. Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, the story of Ruth is really real. This isn't a fable. This isn't a made-up story. One day, mark my words, one day you're going to have the opportunity to meet Ruth in heaven. That's going to be an amazing thing. But God also wanted Ruth's story to be recorded for us and be, so that it could be passed down for all generations to read. Now, the, the author of Ruth is unknown, but he was a master of story. And, and basically, we see here we're led through this story, like every great story, we're led through tragedy, through desperation, through determination, through risk, we're going to see risk today, but also through faithfulness, love, and redemption. But one of the things that I really love about the story of Ruth is when and where it takes place. And just a quick brief uh, high-level view, the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth, the book of Judges covers a little over 400 years of the history of Israel. Well, well Ruth's story takes place in that time frame, probably more toward the end of the time of the Judges. Okay, so, so basically, if you were to go back and, and look at the book of Judges and compare it to Ruth, these books are very different. And, if, and I encourage you to do it. Go back and read Judges. Judges, you will find really a book that is filled with story after story, mainly of, of the people of Israel being faithless, rebelling against God. I mean, going against His Word. What you'll find in the book of Judges, there's some beautiful moments too, but it's like a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster of, of disobedience and oppression and then God saving them again. But what I love is you turn the page into the story of Ruth and there's a stark contrast. A story nestled into the chaos of judges. And in this story, we get to get immersed in Ruth's story about God's faithfulness about God's grace for us. Now, uh, this is what I was thinking as we are preparing for today. The contrast between the time of, of the, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, I believe that's something that really should appeal to us today. 
And the reason for that is, is you and I, we live in a world that is filled with chaos, often feeling like a roller coaster, ups and downs, times of, of trouble, times of rampant unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. And I don't know about you, but when you turn on the news or see what's going on in the world, how many of us here are ready for a story that really points us to the faithfulness of God? that points us to the grace of God, a God who loves us so much that he redeemed us and brought us back. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I need that kind of story. It seems like more and more often every day. But Ruth's story, I like to think of it this way. It's like an oasis in the, I don't know, the parched and dry land of the judges. And I believe we need that kind of oasis in the parched, dry land of this world today. Now, to be fair, though, Ruth's story is not all rainbows and roses. I mean, we've seen the, the difficulties, and, and, and it plays on all of our emotions. I mean, go back to Ruth chapter 1. Our hearts break with Naomi as her, her husband, Elimelech, dies right at the beginning. But then our hearts continue to break as both of her sons die soon after that, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, as, as widows. But not only that, but they're all alone. They're in desperate need, and they cannot fend for themselves in this great famine that's going on. You see, I believe a story like this also touches the raw nerves of things going on in our lives, our own pain, our own struggles, our own trials, our own grief. But what I love about this story, again, is it points us to the faithfulness of our loving God. He brings uh, Naomi and Ruth uh, out of a place of tragedy and loss to the blessing of home and family. We need this reminder today. At least I do. I need to know, again, that that same God of Ruth is our God. Today, right now, as we sit here in this sanctuary, a God who, who touches our hearts and lives, who, who blesses us through His Word and sacraments, but also blesses us to make us a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the King. Now, Ruth's story, again, ultimately points us to Jesus, and it's because of Jesus that you and I belong. We belong right here and right now in this family called Messiah, but in the greater family, by God's grace, we belong because of Jesus for now and for eternity. So grab your Bibles, have them open. Let's get into Ruth chapter 3 as you're, again, trying to find it. This is a part of the story, a huge turning point, a lot of risk involved. But let me, let me lay a couple of more things from chapter 2 in front of you. We're with Ruth and, and Naomi in Bethlehem. That's the location. Last week, as Pastor Dustin unpacked chapter 2, Ruth meets Boaz, a very central figure in all of this. And we also find out that Boaz is a good man, a godly man a faithful man, and he shows deep kindness to Ruth. And in fact, Boaz is also a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. In fact, she says in, uh, um, uh, there we go, catch up with myself. Um, she says in chapter 2, verse 20, this man Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, we're going to unpack that even more next week in chapter 4, but let me just, for our purposes today, what is a redeemer, small r? A redeemer, when you looked in the law of Moses, the, the first five books of the Bible, what you found was this, a redeemer, also known as a kinsman redeemer, was a male relative 
that was responsible on behalf of a relative to rescue them, uh, who, somebody who's in trouble, in danger, or in need. And I, I think we can all agree that Ruth and Naomi fit that bill. But again, what I want to make sure we're understanding is what makes this story so special is it's part of the greatest love story ever told. The details that point way beyond Boaz as a kinsman redeemer to the one true and living redeemer, Jesus, our Savior, who would be born a little more than a thousand years after Boaz in that very small town of Bethlehem. It's kind of cool. You'll get to know how all this fits together. Uh, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, Jesus. We'll cover that in chapter four next week. So chapter three, again, is a turning point. We know Boaz is interested in Ruth. We know that he's a, kins, uh, that he's a, a relative. We also know Boaz is a man of integrity. That's really important to this story. Now Naomi comes up with a plan. It's not a like evil plan. It's a plan that's gonna help her and Ruth as widows to be a part of family. It's a risky plan with possible catastrophic consequences if things go south. Look with me at verses one and two here. Uh, what I read for you a moment ago, uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, is talking to Ruth and she says this, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Basically what she's saying here is she's saying, I'm hoping for a marriage proposal from Boaz to you, Ruth. We're also hoping that, that Boaz is going to step up as that kinsman redeemer. Now, you're going to find him. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. And she says this, though, to Ruth. She goes, now wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Put on a cloak. Go to the threshing floor. What basically Naomi is saying is, Ruth, your time of mourning is complete. I want you to take off the mourning clothes and put on clothes that show yourself to be a woman ready to be married again. But here's a crazy thing, and this is what makes the story such a risky one, is she's supposed to go to the threshing floor at night. Now, this may be what it looked like. A threshing floor is a place where uh, when they would harvest the grains, the farmers would come in, the harvesters, and they would, they would separate the, the grain from the chaff uh, and, and do them on these threshing floors. But sadly, that's not the only thing that sometimes took place on threshing floors at night. Uh, because of pagan rituals, because of pagan influences, these places could also be places of promiscuity and even prostitution, which meant this was a very risky place for a wholesome young woman to go at night all by herself. Now put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to this. It's really important. Skip with me down to verse 4. So um, when he lies down, this is still Naomi's instructions, when he lies down, observe where he's at, and then I want you to go over and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Now that is like, what, what, why? Uncover his feet. Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not an innuendo. It's not a prelude to physical intimacy. That was not a part of Naomi's plan. It was a practical thing. Let me put it this way. How many of you have ever had your spouse on a really cold night pull all the covers off of you? Do you stay asleep? No. No, I have to apologize to my wife all the time. Um, well, uncovering Boaz's feet was a quiet and tactful way of waking Boaz up instead of banging pots and pans over him. I don't know. If my brothers and I had been telling Ruth what to do, we would have said to put his hand in a bowl of warm water. But that's for a different purpose. Um, so, 
So she goes down there, thankfully listening to Naomi and, and not to me. And, uh, and she says this, and, and she goes, so she goes down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law commanded her. And then in verse 7, when Boaz had, had finished a hard day's work and he sat down, he's eaten some food, he's drank some wine, and it says that he's merry. It's not, he's not intoxicated. He's just feeling good. He's happy. It's been a great day. He's laying down, and he's going to sleep next to his grain. Now, again, it's important to remember God, that Boaz is a godly and faithful man. That means he is not sleeping at the threshing floor hoping for some midnight tryst. No, he is guarding his grain from thieves. I mean, that was a common practice. So Ruth comes up uh, and, and verse, later in verse 7, and she uncovers his feet softly it says and she lies down around midnight finally his feet get cold and Boaz wakes up and he's startled I think that's probably an understatement I, I think yeah that'd be a very startling thing and he says and it's nighttime he can't see who it is who are you and then Ruth says this I love this she goes I am Ruth your servant and this is key spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer spread your wings do you know what that is that is a marriage proposal. Right here. Ruth has just asked Boaz to marry her. And so begins the Sadie Hawkins dance, right? Um, that ages me, right? <laughs> Young people, Sadie Hawkins, ask your parents. All right. Um, it was unheard of for a woman to make a marriage proposal to a man, but Ruth is swinging for the fences. She is laying it all out. She is taking a huge risk. But this, my friends, this is where the story gets tense and suspenseful because now we get to see the true character of Boaz emerge. Ruth's very life is in his hands. This startled, probably groggy, half-asleep man has options. First option, he could have called out to other harvesters sleeping by their grain nearby, thus exposing the fact that she's at the threshing floor. And guess what? They probably would have made wrong assumptions about why Ruth was there. Or two, he could have quietly just rejected her proposal, sent her off in disgrace. The third option is a horrible one. If he were not a righteous, God-fearing man, he could have given in to temptation and taken advantage of Ruth to satisfy his own sinful desires. But Boaz chooses a fourth option. Before we go there, let me just, let me, let's just bring it into today. Every good story, doesn't it help us consider our own lives, our own thoughts, our own decisions, especially when the leading character is facing a huge dilemma? I mean, it's what they're supposed to do. Get us to think about ourselves. You and I as followers of Jesus are follow, are, 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 uh, face all kinds of decisions every single day. Some of them small decisions, some of them life-changing decisions. Ones where there are options before us, just like Boaz had before him. Options where we can satisfy our sinful desires. Or options that we can demonstrate that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Faithful to God and, and, and integrity to his, his word. I mean, think about it. What decisions, what kinds of things are you facing right now? Because I'll tell you what, Boaz was no different than you and I. He was, a, he was imperfect, just as you and I are imperfect. Sin was crouching at his door, just as sin crouches at yours and mine, wanting to come in and, and take control. Boaz could have done anything he wanted with Ruth. 
Ruth was completely vulnerable that night. I mean, she was praying and trusting that he would act out of kindness and, and faithfulness to God. But I think as we read this story, and I'm, just as Boaz did, so too you and I must rely on the power of God's Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to give us discernment and strength to remain faithful, especially in the face of temptation. I love how Paul reminds us of this, and I'll put it in the New Living Translation in front of you in 1 Corinthians 10. It says the temptations in your life, just like Boaz, are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, God will give you a way out so that you can endure. So what was option four? Look with me at verse 10. I'll put it on the screens as well. Boaz says to Ruth, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after other men. Ruth had options too. She had been accepted by the people of Bethlehem already. She could have sought out a different suitor, maybe one closer to her age, uh, maybe a wealthy one, I don't know, something different to her liking. But she, like Boaz, was a godly woman and faithful to her family. This was the right decision to bless her and her family for generations. And so what happens then, if you read on, Boaz says, okay, I'll do everything you've asked because I know your reputation also in verse 11, he goes, it's already known that you too are a godly woman. And it's true, he says, I'm a redeemer, but there's another relative that's just ahead of me. And we're going to find out how that all gets worked out in chapter 4 next week. So you got to come back for that. But I want you to look down with me because he says to her after all that, now just lay down and go to sleep until morning. But in verse 14... She lays at his feet until morning, but arose before no one could recognize someone. It was, in other words, it was still dark. And I love what he says here. Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He knew what kind of reputation it might cause. And I don't want to try to boil all of this down into a simple moral truth or two, but there's an important moral lesson right here. And I don't want you to miss it. As I talked a moment ago about Boaz facing temptations, and, and let me just do it this way. Guys, men, let me have your attention. If you're in your phones, just look this way for a moment. Hopefully your phones have the Bibles open, right? And especially I'll say to our young men today, be like Boaz. I implore you to be like Boaz. And ladies, ladies here, and especially our young ladies here, live like Ruth. I implore you to live like Ruth. They are both amazing examples of faithfulness to God and purity toward one another. We know it. Our world is inundated with promiscuity, with pornography, with adultery, with, with the normalizing of intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage, all of which goes against God's word, all of which is harmful to us in the way that God has designed us to be in relationship. Physical intimacy is meant for one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage. We face temptations, though, don't we? We face temptations sometimes every day to follow our sinful desires and passions. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, just like Ruth and Boaz in a moment that could have gone very differently, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can glorify God in our bodies. And we can choose to live faithfully 
according to his word, according to his will. Amen? This is something we struggle with. This is something pervasive, and it's a lesson right here that can come off the page. I mean, look at it. Boaz did not look at Ruth as an object. He didn't look at her as a possession to be taken, but he showed deep respect. He showed love and care for her and Naomi. And so he wants her to leave before the sun comes up so people don't get the wrong impression. But he also wants to take care of her. So he sends her home with some food, six measures it says, which is about 60 to 90 pounds of grain. And so when Ruth goes home, it's recorded in verses 16 and following, Ruth goes home and you can imagine Naomi going, how did it go? Tell me about it. What, what happened? And so Ruth explains everything that Boaz said. And then this is what I love how Naomi responds. And I'll put this on the screens. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, wait. You'll learn how the matter turns out. This man is not going to rest until the matter is resolved. But, but as we bring this to a close today, as I said earlier, I don't want to just boil this all down into a, a moral lesson or two. But again, even though Ruth and Boaz are wonderful examples of godly character, there's so much more here. Again, I believe the story, like I said at the beginning, is an oasis in a parched land and a broken world. We can identify we can identify with their pain of loss. We can identify with the trials. We can identify with the temptations and the tensions here of living in a world of chaos. But we can also learn from this story because it is our story. God's story is your story. The only hope for Naomi and Ruth was to come home and to be a part of a family. Now, I know there was a risk. The risk was, is Naomi, uh, is Ruth going to be accepted? She's a Moabite. Is she going to be accepted as a foreigner? Uh, you know, but again, uh, the risk was great, but their trust in God was greater. Because we too were foreigners. We were born outside of God's family because of sin. But, but God has sent us a redeemer, not in a mere man like Boaz, but in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, through his death on the cross, he has redeemed you and me. He has called us by name. He has made us part of his family. We are sons and daughters of the king. And then through his victorious resurrection, he has guaranteed every one of us that we will one day pass from this veil of tears into the beauty and perfection of heaven. But until that day, as we continue to navigate this difficult, often difficult journey on this earth, our loving God invites us, just as Naomi said to Ruth, our loving God invites us to be still, to wait, to know that he is God. He sustains us through his word as we hear that gospel message. He sustains us through the sacraments as we receive his body and blood. But God also sustains us through this a family, through each other. God calls us and he gathers us as his church family because we need each other. We need to love one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to help each other. Uh, we need to hold each other accountable to living according to God's word as we grow as followers of Jesus. And I think this is cool. Just before I finish, this thing is cool. Whenever you pray for help, you say, God, I need help. Have you ever thought about the fact that that answer to that prayer might be sitting right here in the sanctuary? 
It might be through one of the people in your family that God is going to answer your prayer. But you know what that means? Is you might be the answer to somebody else's prayer right now for help. But that's what family does. That's what God's family does. We reflect the love of Jesus to each other in all of life's joys and, of course, in all of life's challenges. And just in case there's anyone here that may have missed that very important point through all of this, you belong here. Because of Jesus, you belong in God's family, your home. You matter. You matter to God, and you matter to us.